Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Hi, everyone. Before I introduce the guests for today, please make sure to go to Patreon to become a subscriber to help support the show to be able to keep it going. Patreon.com slash indoctrination. You can go now, take care of it, and come back to the show. And also, be sure to check out the webinars on my website at rachelbernsteintherapy.com for former cult members, people who have been in relationships with controllers for their loved ones, to know how to help them, for the loved ones to know how to help themselves during this process. And I think the part that I've gotten the most feedback on that's been instrumental for a lot of people, which I'm very gratified about, has been about how to tell your story, how to share what happened to you without it bringing shame on you, without the listener hearing for what's wrong with you that you got involved in it, but rather what's wrong with the person who did this to you and how this happens and could happen to anyone. And also how to tell your story when you are the loved one, when you are the family, because it's it's an isolating thing for family members, for the spouses, for the children, for the parents, because sometimes they're judged for not having done more, not having raised their kids uh, with enough whatever it is to be able to prevent this from happening to them as though that were somehow possible. So, Go to rachelbernsteintherapy.com and check out the webinars and any other downloadables there. And I'm happy to be of service to all of you in different ways. So take advantage of the content that I've put out and put together. For today's show, I am very pleased to be able to have Nina Lucas and Joyce Short Nina and Joyce are from the Consent Awareness Network. It's an organization I really wanted you to know about. They are fighting for sexual abuse survivors by codifying consent in our penal codes as a freely given, knowledgeable, and informed agreement. Joyce is the founder and chief executive of the Consent Awareness Network, and she's also an author and a TEDx talk presenter. Joyce has been an expert witness and the architect of several legislative bills that can radically change how consent is dealt with by our justice system. She's been featured on Nightline, CBS News, and the New York Times, as well as being quoted in books and journals, and The Moment by Andrea Constant. Joyce has been honored as a woman of distinction by the New York State Assembly, and Nina serves as chief of staff and a Consent Outreach Ambassador for the Consent Awareness Network, and is also a member of Never Alone Advocacy, which was founded to fight back against abuse of power in the military. As a classically trained singer, Nina's secret superpower is opera, and she is dedicated to applying her robust voice to inform, educate, and empower wherever she can in all efforts to codify consent. I was delighted to be able to talk to them. And I'm so happy to have you hear from them now. Here are Nina and Joyce. It is my absolute pleasure to have Joyce and Nina on the show today. It is such an important subject that we're going to be covering. And you have an organization that I want everyone to know about. 
So if we can take a moment and let's start maybe with you, Joyce, if you want to introduce yourself, that'd be great. Sure. I'm Joyce Short. Thank you for having us on. The name of our coalition is the Consent Awareness Network, also lovingly called CAN. We can make the world a safer place. And that's basically what we're up to. We're all about defining the word consent in our laws because we need to turn our human right of consent into a civil right backed by law. And that, unfortunately, is not the case right now. You know, a lot of organizations deal with healing survivors, and we're 100% behind healing survivors. But what we'd like to do is stop the rampant level of crime that creates survivors. And the only way to do that is to fix our broken justice system and define consent properly in our laws. Mm. Right. Oh, so much to pick up on in our discussion. Thank you for that. And so, Nina, go ahead. My name is Nina Lucas, and I serve as the chief of staff for the Consent Awareness Network. I am also involved in an organization called Never Alone Advocacy, and the mission there is to um, fight abuse of power in the military, specifically around suicide and sexual assault. And uh, that's very meaningful for me because my perpetrator was a high-ranking military official. And I came to work with Joyce years ago because I was looking for a legal remedy to understand what happened to me and to see if I could pursue justice. And I found out that my state, Pennsylvania, does not have a definition for consent. So that's, that didn't work for me. And um, also the Uniform Code of Military Justice does not define consent properly. So I was left without without justice. And so when I found Joyce's work, I always say it was my eureka moment and everything kind of made sense. It kind of fell into place. And I said, you know, this is what we need to do. This is the work that needs to be done. And it's really become my life's work along with Joyce. Mm, And I noticed the pin on you too, if you don't mind explaining. Oh, but of course, this is our definition of consent, the definition of consent, and that is FGKIA. That stands for freely given, knowledgeable, informed agreement. And we also add with a person with a capacity to reason. That is our hashtag. And we also use the hashtag codify consent. Nice. Freely given. Very important. Very important. Yes, I come across a lot of that. Uh, that that's the murky waters of, you know, being in a cult and uh, et cetera. So thank you. Thank you for introducing yourself, Nina. And of course, we want to hear more about your story. So Joyce, what brought you to this world? Uh, I've been sexually assaulted. I don't know whether you happen to have seen my TEDx talk, but I uh, actually went through the three different ways that I've been sexually assaulted in my lifetime. And each one of those methods of sexual assault are covered by model penal code, by force, by duress, and by deception. At no time did I ever have any opportunity to secure justice. So after uh, experiencing what I went through, it made me aware that we have a huge problem. And I began researching what was causing that problem and discovered that there is no definition for consent in our laws. And uh, that's true all across the country and all around the world. Now that we have Me Too Uh, We have a lot of people that are coming forward with their stories, uh, but stories in and of themselves don't change things. What changes things is by changing our laws. Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, explained it to the T 
when she said, uh, we change nothing until we change our laws. So it's very important that we all know the rampant level of sexual assault and sex trafficking, domestic violence, stealthing. You know, there are so many crimes that revolve around your consent, but we don't have a definition for consent. And the end result is, right, we all know that the 14th Amendment of the United States grants us equal protection under the law. But how do you have equal protection if the very word that determines guilt or innocence is not defined? Right. No, it's impossible. (laughs) Yes. And that's why you have the recent uh, Weinstein case where you had one person that was able to secure justice and three others that were not. Because in the state of California, they define consent by your positive cooperation. Now, positive cooperation means, did you go along with it? If you went along with it, you consented in California. However, we all know that you don't consent unless, you know, if someone is using force or instilling fear, I call them the three F words that should never take place in sex. When I talk to schools, I say to them, look, I I know that you all know the F word for sex. But do you know that there are three F words that should never take place in sex? And they're force, fear, and fraud. And then there's I word, and that's incapacity. So you should never use force, fear, fraud, or exploit someone's incapacity. And when you do, you're not consenting. Even if you nod your head and say yes, someone influenced you to say yes or to comply. Even if you're giving positive cooperation, you're not consenting. Right. So there's this idea of doing things under duress. And that happens all the time with the the cases that I deal with, where people say, I had to sign these forms. They put them in my face. Everyone was standing around me and telling me I had to hurry and sign them so that I could go and meet with the whatever, the guru. You know, this is my one chance. Come on, come on, come on. Just sign these things. They find out later that they're, you know, non-disclosure agreements and they didn't have a chance to read them and they just were forced to sign things or they sign their rights away to be able to ever take someone to court, et cetera. And So I think there's also this emotional duress that takes place, right? Where there are a lot of people I work with who who blame themselves because they say they chose, they chose this or they should have stopped it. And I know that's a big part of what we're going to talk about today. But when you hear their story and you hear that they were worried about their safety if they didn't say yes, or their family was threatened if they didn't say yes, or they were going to be put out on the street if they didn't say yes, and they have a child. So uh, are you really consenting in that moment or is it under duress? And I find it so interesting that the law hasn't come up to speed yet with really clearly defining it because it happens so, so often. And I wonder just about these kinds of situations, what are these scenarios that compromise actual consent? What are the things you've come across? I'm sure there are many. Keep in mind that there are other kinds of agreement besides consent. And I think that that's important for people to recognize. When you are nodding your head and saying yes, you're assenting. You're agreeing on the face of it, right? Every time you nod your head and say yes, you're you're assenting, you're agreeing. But are you consenting? Are you freely giving knowledgeable and informed agreement? And the other kind of agreement is 
acquiescence. That plays a big part of it in uh, coercive control. You could be acquiescing, agreeing under duress, and that's what you just described. Right? You just described a circumstance where you were hurried, where you felt that you would be losing something that was valuable to you. Some states, and you're going to see fairly often that states will identify coercion, but coercion in, mo- in most states is the kind of duress that you experience when someone threatens you with bodily harm. However, let's look at the Weinstein folks. Now, the Weinstein folks were uh, afraid that, that they'd be blackballed from the industry by a man who had the capacity to do that. Uh, he had the ability to halt their careers and look at a, a landlord, perhaps, uh, that could evict you from your home or a teacher that could flunk you in a grade and you could lose your scholarship that you've worked years and years and years to gain. And in most states, these things are not, uh, these things do not qualify as coercion. Coercion is the uh, threat of bodily harm in most states. Yeah. With the coercion, again, that I deal with, rarely is it threat of bodily harm. It's sometimes that, you know, you won't have a relationship with God anymore. This is what God wants for you. You know, how do you prove that also? I mean, that's where I'm sure it gets difficult for the law to prove these sorts of things. But how interesting that it's used this definition that goes towards the obvious. And unless it's sort of obvious and there, there's some evidence of bodily harm or something that people can deal with in that way, then it doesn't qualify. But I'd say probably a larger percentage of it is threat of other things. That's true. There's a lot of coercive control initiatives going on, uh, trying to incorporate it into the law, trying to get the law to realize that coercive control is part of a a domestic abuse or an interpersonal abuse. But I know of one state that has done something. It it was an eight-page paper that went into the law, and it didn't mention consent once. There are other initiatives um, with regard to coercive control that, that we've studied, and they may talk about consent, but they don't define it. So um, again, since coercive control is fundamentally a consent violation that happens over and over and over, again, we're dealing with something that, that we need to de- define into law in order to understand um, exactly what coercive control is. And when we define consent in the law, we're going to fortify and strengthen other legal initiatives that are already there, like fertility fraud for human and sex trafficking, for non-consensual intimate image abuse, for stealthing. When we do define it, it's going to be much more clear and it's going to result in, uh, you know, having a greater efficacy that these laws will have. I am wondering also when we're dealing with certain ages of people, many of the cases I deal with are like with child brides and young girls being sent to, you know, underground tunnels to you know, the pastor, like this case with La Luz del Mundo, where I worked with a number of the girls who, well, were freed from it. And just dealing with their rights, even some of these abusive teen treatment or first conversion kind of situation, what are the rights when it comes to minors and consent? Minors can't consent, period. Uh, We have a concept of the age of consent It's actually the age of reason. Back when I was growing up, (laughs) it was called the age of reason. The reason it's called the age of reason is because 
even if you know all the facts, you don't have the maturity of mind to be able to act in your own best interest by law until you get to a specific age. So a person who is younger than the age of reason is unable to consent because even if they have all the facts, they know what they're doing, uh, they don't necessarily understand the consequences of their behavior. A good example of this or, or, or something that I think will clarify it has to do with Nuremberg Code. Okay, Nuremberg Code is why you have to sign your consent form when you go for a COVID shot, right? That's the result of Nuremberg Code. Of course, many people are aware that the Nuremberg trials took place in Nazi uh, in Germany after World War II. And the medical experiments on people in the concentration camps uh, resulted in the Nuremberg trials. And subsequently, Nuremberg Code was created. And today, all around the world, we adhere to Nuremberg Code. And Nuremberg Code's definition for consent is freely given knowledgeable and informed agreement by a person with capacity to reason. Okay. So now, when you sign your COVID vaccination consent form, if you're a child, you can't sign that form, can you? You can't sign it because you are not the age of reason. So you can sign an assent form. You can give your assent, which is agreement on the face of it, but you don't have that depth of reasoning that enables you to sign the consent form. And your parent or your guardian has to sign the consent form on your behalf. So now we have kind of, we apply this in everything. When you are not a specific age, which that jurisdiction deems to be the age of reason, which we call the age of consent, then you are incapable of consent by law. And so people that are young and are being brought into these religious cults, they basically don't have the ability to reason, don't have the ability to consent. Right. When you also work with people who have been born and raised in some kind of communal living situations and they don't know what their rights are. They don't know there's a constitution. They don't, they're not familiar with the fact that there's even, I think, a police force or a Department of Children's Services. They, they just don't know. And sometimes there have been raids on some compounds, some raids that I've been a part of not planning because I think they're traumatizing in their own way. But with working with the people who've been taken off compounds during a raid, it's very interesting when people are kind of in the world for a moment and they start hearing these words and they actually kind of resonate like a seed is planted where people later on after that will, you know, they finally realize that they had the right to say no because some social worker, while they were taken off the compound, let them know that. It was the first time they had heard that. And they had the right to protect their bodies. And they had the right to uh, be able to call. And, and that there were people out there who they could call. And it's it's a very important thing that people know that organizations like this exist for this reason. Because sometimes it's the first time they've heard about it. And the first time they've felt any modicum of safety in the world, which is really quite powerful. So, I mean, just to underscore the power of what you're providing here. I'm curious, Nina, if you wanted to tell more about your story, kind of what drew you, and I know you were talking about um, someone in the military, which is a whole other issue that we do need to cover. 
That's true. I, well, I'm a civilian, so I'm, I'm not a member of the military and, and, you know, certainly not understanding necessarily how it operates or, or, or anything like that. Um, one of the things that I was trying to figure out, and this did not just involve me, this involved many other women being abused in this manner. Um, we were trying to find out what's the legal remedy for what happened to us, which was essentially what's called in, in, in many states, fraud in the inducement. And what this means is that if we had known what was really the situation, what was really going on, there's no way we would have said yes. And before I met Joyce, I was uneducated about this. I believed that, first of all, I believed that consent was defined in the law and all these matters were absolutely taken care of. So that was one thing uh, where I was mostly misinformed. And we knew, all of us knew emotionally, even intellectually, that you know, yes, we agreed, we complied, we went along, we said yes, and very times often enthusiastically, that's something that we always laugh at, enthusiastic consent. But in any event, um, we would never have uh, gone along or agreed or complied. But we were told that there was nothing we can do. Um, for instance, in Pennsylvania, there is a law about fraud and the inducement, but it is so antiquated and archaic that one of the things among many that are protected is uh, your domestic livestock. So, um, you know, that's just crazy. Your pigs are protected better than your women. Absolutely. I mean, we have things like lemon laws um, where, you know, if our, our odometer has been tampered with or whatever, we have recourse because we were defrauded, um, even though we wanted to buy that car. So that was going on. And, and to top it all off, our offender is a physician who acted as our physician. That's not how any of us met him, but we were being prescribed medication. You know, we were getting these diagnoses from him and, and you know, I mean, he, he provided orders, testing, things like that. And so um, this is how I came to this work because I said, this is wrong. What happened to us is wrong. The law does not recognize it though. And so we wanted to, as a group of women and me in particular, I wanted to do something about it. And that's where I found Joyce because you cannot consent when fraud is involved. And I wanted to say also, just to, to tell your audience who are recovering from uh, this kind of abuse. You know, I listened with great interest to your episode with attorney Carol Murchison of McAllister Oliveris. I, I believe that's why I reached out. And you were discussing the, the legal implications regarding many aspects of consent and how it fits in with sexual and spiritual abuse. And we've um, branched out and we've begun to work with many survivors of cults and religious abuse and high demand groups. And they are finding our message to be transformational in their thought process as to figuring out exactly what happened to them and how they got there. And we believe very strongly that understanding the true meaning of consent, freely given, knowledgeable, informed agreement, can greatly assist in healing journeys. I discussed this, uh, Joyce and I discussed this when we, we appeared with Sarah and Nippy on a Little Bit Culty podcast. The definition of consent never changes. You know, um, sexual consent is what people always think of when we, they hear the word, but consent is consent, interpersonal abuse, sexual assaults. Uh, it's always freely given knowledgeable, informed agreement. And we talk about the victim blaming and shaming that comes from society and law enforcement and defense attorneys. But the blame and shame that we heap upon ourselves is the most injurious and deep reaching, isn't it? But once you realize that consent is a freely given, knowledgeable, informed agreement by a person with the capacity to reason, you truly understand that it's all about the malicious influence of a bad actor, not about your words and conduct, or if you complied or even said yes, that is not consent. 
you are not to blame in any way for your abuse. And I know that this helped me incredibly because I asked myself, why did I stay? Why didn't I know better? Why did I say yes? And uh, though I do want to say that although this knowledge can be life-changing, unfortunately, the law says that these behaviors do constitute consent. And so we're here to unequivocally communicate that is not consent. So beautifully said. And and I'm glad that there is that message in there that made you feel like you had the aha moment. Uh, this, not, this is not on me. It is something that really delays people getting help, reaching out, feeling that they're deserving of getting the help that they need or uh, justice if they feel like they've somehow brought that into their lives. I wonder also, the idea of why did I stay? Why did I put up with this? I, I've done videos. I have a PDF on my website. Why did I stay? Because it gets asked so often. And there's so many reasons. And they're all really um, applicable in, in so many of these situations. Why did I say? Why didn't I go? Why did I go along with something? Even after I saw that there could be issues here, even after I saw the red flags. It's part of human nature. It is part of human nature. You know, we're all built to bond. It's an innate characteristic of being human. It's actually what distinguishes humanity from other animals. You know, we're probably one of the weakest of all the intelligent animals on the on, on the face of the earth. We were born into a world with, you know, dinosaurs and bears and, you know, all kinds of things that could, could hurt us, or could hurt our children. Our children are totally defenseless until they're in their teens. And so in order for us to actually be protected and live, you know, we had to create societies. Uh, We had to create tribes and we had to allocate, you know, the men were out there doing the, doing the hunting and the women were there being the nurturer and the gatherer. And we all had to live in a community in order to be able to exist in a world with wild animals. Every type of animal has specific characteristics uh, that enable them to flourish in the world. Our ability in particular is our intelligence and our ability to bond. And so bonding triggers all of these internal brain chemistry. We hear the term chemistry in terms of uh, being infatuated with someone and love at first sight, but it's real. It's what goes on in your brain, in your neurochemistry that attaches you to someone that you feel affection for. And that trusting ability is something that's innate in humans, unless you're a psychopath. So now psychopaths do not have that emotional neuropeptides and hormones, dopamine, serotonin, oxytocin, they don't relate in the same way that brain chemistry does not draw them together with other people. And they have no conscience as a result of it. You don't feel badly about what you do to someone when you're a psychopath. And you don't feel badly because you don't have the neuropathy, you don't have the brain chemistry that will enable you to have a conscience. But for most normal people, they have a bonding mechanism that enables them to love, to care, to put themselves in another person's shoes. And we tend to be forgiving. If we weren't forgiving, then we wouldn't be able to retain our relationships. We wouldn't be able to bring up our young. We're built this way because Mother Nature wants us to have two parents bringing together the ability to nurture that child, to protect that child, to feed that child, all those things that that child 
needs are best created by the mating of two parents or more. You know, we live in villages and it takes a village to raise a child. So, you know, all of that is based on your on your uh, brain chemistry. And so when you stay, it's largely because you're a forgiving human being that's part of your nature and your brain chemistry enabled you to bond and you want to be forgiving. You have a sense that being forgiving is what's expected of you. And when you love someone, you tend to be forgiving because you're emotionally and chemically, literally addicted to that person. The same brain brain chemistry that addicts you to alcohol or addicts you to drugs addicts you to uh, someone that you're attracted to. And these kind of abusers without conscience, they know very well a couple of things. First of all, they know how to manipulate you because of that. And then also, I would say that abusers in general know very well, especially in cases of sexual assault, that all they need to do is to elicit a yes from a victim and they will be well within the letter, if not the spirit of the law. And circling back to cults in the Nexium case, in HBO's The Vow, which documented the story, we hear an actual audio recording of Keith Raniere discussing his consent concerns with the um, co-conspirator, Allison Mack, um, around the branding of women with, with their initials. And Keith said that Allison should instruct the women to ask, Master, will you brand me? It would be an honor. And he elaborated that that would get the consent issue out of the way. And guess what? The action from the victim would legally and reasonably be understood to be consent because it was positive cooperation. You know, although, you know, we know that probably duress was involved, but more importantly, fraud in that uh, situation. And the physician, uh, Dr. Danielle Roberts, who did the branding, rightfully her medical license has since been revoked, thankfully, um, insisted that the women had their agency and and did consent. And it's sad that a doctor has absolutely no idea of what consent is and isn't, and and obviously is ignorant of of Nuremberg Code. But fraud is not consent. Agreement under duress is not consent. But the law seems to only understand this when we're talking about financial or contractual crimes. And this is not equal protection under the law. It's a fascinating case when we think about Nexium and other cases similar to it. But in this scenario that you give about the women being branded, and I've worked with a number of them who were, they were scared some felt honored because they had been told that this was an honor. And then afterwards, you know, realized it was not such an honor. And they now have to live with this scar, being scarred. The fact that the doctor was female or presenting as female was also something that lowered people's defenses in that space. And so, right, I think if someone wants to do something like she did, it would be much easier to decide that the women were all okay with it so that you can be okay with what you did to them. And so I think a lot of people were just sort of finding a way to have their conscience have an out, you know, that they could be okay with what's happening. And what's so interesting too, is that, you know, when you're told to say something that gives your consent, like here, say this line, then I wonder, according to the law, if that's still consent or if it's not because you're being told what to say. If you signed your COVID consent form, let's say they told you that they were giving you an allergy shot because you didn't want to sign that consent form. And instead you signed off on getting an allergy shot, but it wasn't an allergy shot. It was a COVID shot. 
the fact that your name appeared on that signature line would not hold up in a court of law. You would be able to sue for fraud. If you signed over your property as a result of duress, you would not be consenting, would you? Even though you signed over your property. Uh, if you signed the back of your title of your car uh, because someone held a gun to your head, even though your signature appeared on that on the back of that uh, title, uh, you would not be held to that signature, would you? And unfortunately, that's how our laws exist today. In many states, and this is a recent change that's taken place in laws, and Nina and I sometimes are just baffled, you know, get hysterical over some of these things that happen and that people say that are so inconsistent with what consent actually is. Basically, your words and actions do not determine whether or not you consented. What determines whether or not you consented, we call it causation in law or influence. What influenced you to say or do those things? If you're influenced by force, fear, fraud, or exploitation of your incapacity, you're not consenting because consent is freely given knowledgeable and informed agreement. So now instead of getting behind the positive sense of what consent is, what our laws do is tell you what consent is not. If I were to tell you I'm not a millennial, would that tell you that I'm a gray-haired baby boomer? Right? You wouldn't have any sense of what I am if I told you that I am not this thing. I'm not a Floridian. Will that tell you I'm I'm a New Yorker? Okay. So what we end up with in this attempt to tell you what something is not is we end up with a law that looks like a Swiss cheese umbrella. It looks like you can't do this, you can't do this, you can't do this. But what can you do? What does it look like that you should do instead of what are these things over here that you can't do? Because there's an infinite amount of things. Always an infinite amount of the things that are not. Yes. Exactly. There is no limit to what consent is not. But there is something that consent is. And if we understood what consent is, then we'd be able to come to grips with what's non-consensual. We would know instinctively. So if malicious influence is what gets you to say what you say or do what you do, then you are not consenting. You're assenting, agreeing on the face of it, or you're acquiescing, that's agreeing under duress, but you can't be consenting because consent is freely given knowledgeable and informed agreement by a person with the capacity to reason. So it's really pretty simple. So in our laws, our laws focus on the verb to consent. To consent means to convey consent to another person. But you have to have consent in order to convey consent. Okay, so now consent is a noun. To consent is a verb. And you have to have the noun consent, freely given knowledgeable and informed agreement by a person with the capacity to reason, in order to consent, to convey your consent to somebody. Now, that person who you're conveying it to, that person who 
you're giving those words to or giving or, or complying uh, with your actions, that person knows, did they use force, fear, fraud, or exploit your incapacity? Okay, there's this thing called mens rea in law. Mens rea means intent. So in order for you to commit a crime by law, uh, there has to be mens rea. You have to have the intent to commit a bad act. So now, is it by accident that you use force? I don't think so. Did you accidentally create duress for this person? I don't think so. Did you defraud them accidentally? Uh, did you exploit their incapacity accidentally? There, you're going to see a gray line because you know there are times when and people will push back and say, well, what if they're both drunk? Well, no law is perfect. The reality is if you were both drunk and got behind a wheel of a car and had a head-on collision, they would still be, we wouldn't stop addressing DWI because that could happen. We can't stop addressing what sexual assault is or what domestic violence is or what sex trafficking is because two people might be drunk and not understand the boundaries that should be occurring. We do not stop addressing murder. We don't fail to recognize what murder is simply because only approximately 35% of murderers get arrested. 65% of murderers is the norm when you look at the statistics from state to state. They're only 30, about 35%. Do we fail to recognize what murder is because we're not arresting every murderer? Well, we can't fail to recognize what all these other all these non-consensual crime criminal acts are because we're not necessarily going to be able to arrest every single one of them, but we still have to understand what that crime consists of. And if we don't understand what that crime consists of, how do we possibly provide equal protection under the law. You know, I wonder also with trying to push this forward and trying to get kind of a, a universality to the definition and understanding of it, what is the pushback? Why is it that this is not getting through? I mean, I know that you've dealt with a lot of it, but just for the audience to understand, why is this so hard? One of the reasons why is because the public is uneducated. All right. And, and there's been a, a great eruption of consent education recently. Uh, there's a whole bunch of consent educators that are popping up. Um, some are certified, some just, you know, take it upon themselves to call them an expert. But what's going on so much that's taught in consent education, uh, first of all, is very harmful because they talk about concepts uh, like affirmative consent, which, of course, is uh, redundant. All consent is affirmative. And um, it's like saying a circular circle. That's very confusing. Yes means yes. We know that that is absolute. That is perhaps one of the most pernicious um, hashtags going on because, you know, um, I said yes, right? And so many other people do, especially in, in cult and in high demand group abuse and spiritual abuse. Same thing with no means no. Uh, these all reinforce the incorrect idea that's all about and dependent upon the behavior of the victim. And also, here's the kicker too. So many points that are perhaps are ethical or uh, that are addressed in consent education are absolutely not backed up in our laws. So 
This is further confusing people and in some cases making them believe that consent matters are properly outlined in penal code, but they are not. And we are not protected, just like me. I thought, okay, this this has got to be against the law. This has got to be, you know, somehow enumerated penal code. No, it is not. Wow. Well, which I'm sure was shocking to find out. I mean, it would make sense that you could find justice with what happened to you. And the fact that you didn't, I'm sure, just made your head explode. And it's so disheartening and so frustrating. And there's so many people out there then, the perpetrators who get away with it, which just emboldens them to keep getting away with it. And that's why it's so important to be able to have a net <laughs> that that reaches everybody. Yeah. I wanted to just interject before we leave what Nina's brought up. One of them that we feel like we're batting our heads against a wall every time we hear this, enthusiastic consent. Oh, please. <laughs> you know, the First Amendment of the United States Constitution says that you have free speech. There is absolutely no way in the United States that the state of, that the state you're in or the, or the federal government is going to walk into your bedroom and tell you how you should talk when you're having sex. There's absolutely no way that you should have to give enthusiastic consent. That's ridiculous. And what you say can be forced. It can be under duress. It could be defrauded from you. It could be that they're exploiting your incapacity. They're just not paying attention to what actually constitutes consent and making this enthusiastic. No, it's wonderful. If you're in a relationship and, and you both are enthusiastic about what you're doing, that's wonderful. But we can't make it a law that everybody has to say this enthusiastically. I mean, that's just absolutely absurd. That's contrary to your right of free speech. Consent is not about what you say and what you do. Consent is about what influenced you. What was the cause? What is causative according to the law? What is the influence that got you to say and do what you did? And the offender knows whether they used malicious influence or whether they used a legally acceptable form of influence to get you to do what you did. And that's all that should be on trial when you're in a courtroom. If that um, trial was about whether or not they stole from you, if they hit you over the head with a two by four, they're a thief. If they convinced you, with a lie, if they deceived you into giving them uh, your money, you did not consent, right? You were defrauded into giving them your money. Uh, if they scared you into giving them your money, right? You give me your money or I'm going to blow your mother's head off. So basically, if someone uses malicious influence, they know they're doing it. They're doing it deliberately, right? So that's the mens rea. They have the intent to harm you. And they're do so they're doing this deliberately to get what you would not otherwise want to give them. And that influence is causing you to behave in a certain way. Both those things, the mens rea and the causation, are what trials on theft are about. But that's not what a trial on sexual assault is about. So uh, let's get back to your question about what's, what stands in the way. So there are a number of obstacles. One of them is that we have prosecutors, judges, and defense attorneys who have been educated under our system as it exists currently and don't recognize what consent is. 
you know, our concept of sexual assault goes way, 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 way back. So back in the Roman era, uh, rape was only a crime against the virgin daughter of a taxpaying citizen. And actually, it wasn't a crime against her. It was a crime against her father because of chattel. And her father owned her chastity until he sold it to the highest bidder called her husband. And that's really the basis of this crime, you know, came out of chattel. And that's this concept about you have to fight with all your might or you have to flee. When in fact, probably about 50% of people that are being sexually assaulted or raped freeze, uh, whether it be tonic immobility, where, where they, they can either be afraid to move, afraid to respond because they knowingly feel that they're going to escalate the problem or a certain amount of paralysis that is an emotional response to trauma and they just feel paralyzed. So there are different ways of responding when you're sexually assaulted. Uh, But our laws were based on you had to fight or you had to flee. You had to fight with all your might or you had to flee because you were protecting your, your father's property or your husband's property. It wasn't about you. It was about them. And so in our laws, you see that today. In some states, if someone gets into bed with you and pretends to be your husband, and engages you in sexual contact, that's a crime. But in that same state, if they pretended to be your boyfriend or your fiance, it would not be a crime. Yes. But it all goes back to the the whole beginnings of rape law, which was based on chattel and still comes forward to us uh, with remnants of chattel in our laws. And so I was speaking at a national ATIXA conference. ATIXA is the Title IX, Title IX administrators from all across the country. Those are the folks that are in schools and, you know, they're dealing with uh, complaints that come come to them from people that are sexually assaulted on a campus. And so I was addressing a group of Title IX administrators in this national conference. Uh, So I explained to them that in your laws, you have both provisions And you have definitions and your provisions, those are the things that tell you how to behave. But if the words that they use are not well-defined, then it's gobbledygook. Before each section of law, you have a set of definitions and you have another set of definitions in general law. And the definitions in general law applies to all law. And the, and the definitions and the sections of, uh, apply only to that particular section. And so in order for you to tell a person in your provision that you need consent without telling the person in your definition what consent actually is, how do you possibly get equal justice under the law? Every jury then has to determine what constitutes consent. And every jury is therefore determining what's a crime. So they're not just evaluating whether the evidence convinces them that that this specific crime took place. They actually have to determine first, what is a crime? And that's not going to be the same from jury to jury, is it? This woman came up to me after I finished speaking and said, you know, I went through 
years and years of law school and I practiced as an attorney. And I never heard that before. I never understood the difference between provisions and definitions. So, yeah, we have people not only in legislature that don't understand their own laws. We also have people in the justice system that don't understand, you know, how their laws are guided by chattel and really not not saying what should be said in order to provide the protection that we need. And what happens, you know, when you have prosecutors often will will say, whoa, wait a minute. If we define consent that way, we're going to be overrun with these cases. We're not going to have a budget in order to be able to address all the cases that are going to come through our doors. And what they fail to recognize is that your laws change moral reasoning. Uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg had said many, many years ago, and I'm going to paraphrase it because she's she used terminology that's not really understandable today. Basically, what she said is that a society's moral reasoning creates our laws, and our laws create society's moral reasoning. So once you define consent correctly in our laws, it's going to change how people think about what is and what is not acceptable. So yes, you might go through a period of time where people, you know, rush in and think, oh, you know, this this happened to me, blah, blah, blah. But what you're actually going to accomplish is you're going to make it understandable to society what actually constitutes a uh, consent so that you can diminish the volume of crime that goes on in society, right? Because it impacts your moral reasoning. It impacts, you know, there was a time when uh, when our society thought that uh, having slaves was perfectly acceptable behavior, and they thought that raping those slaves was perfectly acceptable behavior. And that stopped because we fought a law. These people went to what killed each other in order to refrain from recognizing what we consider today to be perfectly understandable morality, right? It's not morally acceptable to have slaves. Yeah. The word appropriations is what prosecutors will bring up because district attorneys get elected because of their record of convictions and they don't want to be swamped by a lot of cases. And whenever any new expansion or something that impacts penal law comes up, they'll immediately have this knee-jerk reaction of, oh my God, we're going to get overrun. And they'll throw up this a smokescreen called appropriations. We don't have the money available to handle all these cases. Well, I'm very sorry, but 30% of rape victims uh, become suicidal. 13% of them actually try to commit suicide. Uh, sexual assault count uh, costs society several trillion dollars each year. So, you know, what what are we dealing with with appropriations? What about these? all these folks that are that are being uh, sexually assaulted and abused. Another one of the pushbacks that you get comes from defense attorneys, where they say that it interferes with the defendant's right to be considered innocent until proven guilty. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. What it does is it simplifies the case. Once you determine that consent is freely given, knowledgeable, and informed agreement, 
by a person with the capacity to reason in a court of law, then you understand that it wasn't what she was wearing. It wasn't whether or not you had prior uh, sexual contact with her or him. I'm sorry, I don't mean to be sexist about it, but let's face it, you know, 90% of sexual assault happens to women, but men can be sexually assaulted too. So it has nothing to do with whether or not they're considered innocent until proven guilty. What it affects is simply what actually determines guilt. And what determines guilt is what influence did the accused use in order to gain compliance? It'll take away defense attorneys' playbook. They rip apart people on the stand because that's what's embedded in the law. When you're talking about in law, when they say consent is your words and conduct, well, of course, that's going to be, um, you know, they're they're just going to be ripped apart, eviscerated. And defense attorneys are not only being cruel when they inevitably take this approach, they're being effective, okay? <laughs> and until we define consent penal code, this toxic practice will continue and, and justice will not be served. You know, society saying, oh, it's terrible what they're doing to victims on the stand, like in the Weinstein trial uh, in Los Angeles, when Jennifer Siebel Newsom, they asked her to recreate the orgasm that she faked. So Harvey Weinstein would stop assaulting her. You know, that would be moot. That, it, it would not be introduced because... It would be inadmissible. Correct. Right. It's incredible. You know, Joyce, you're talking about not having the funding for things. It's reminding me of this study done of kids in juvenile hall and also in the prison system, the number of them who have learning disabilities who were ostracized or made fun of at school and and were sort of set back and they just didn't feel like they could be a success at anything else except for maybe crime, but also just sometimes just feeling very bad about themselves. If there was more funding put into getting them the education that was appropriate for them, then we wouldn't have jails system that's overrun. I mean, it, it's really looking at it systemically, which I know we're notoriously bad at. What I, I also am curious about, Nina, when you were talking, I know that you were saying you're a civilian and you're mentioning, though, the military. There is a sense that sometimes the rules or the laws don't apply to things like the military, to things like churches, to other places where somehow it all breaks down. But I think it's an important message for the audience to know that it is consistent across the board. It's not different in these places, even though it sometimes behaves differently because they have their own ethics board. They have their own legal system within their system. They police themselves. And police themselves. Right. Can you just talk about that for a moment? Well, sure. In my experience, I mean, I knew that what happened to me was a, a consent violation. I um, I was trying to report it. Uh, we tried to report it to his command. And, uh, you know, they kind of put up the, I guess, the good old boys uh, situation or like, let's gather around and, and, and protect our reputation. A woman called me, a woman sergeant, and she said, okay, I'm going to be taking, you know, investigating this at least initially. And she asked, I use her um, personal cell and her personal email <laughs> to communicate with her, which is obviously, uh, you know, not protocol. Um, as you know, a lot of these offenses don't exist in a vacuum. They're not done by just one person. There requires assistance from others. Um, in my case, it was people that he was commanding. 
had something to do with it in one way, shape or form. And so, you know, it's just that you're, you're, you're totally dismissed. And um, it took me a long time to figure out how I would try to pursue this. And, and this is in, in everybody's case when you're dealing with institutions or just the law in general. I've been trying to do this since July, 2016. It's still unresolved. Right now I have a, a FOIA request pending that's finally going to give me the, the disposition of my case. And there's, they, they just told me, well, you're going to get it in July, 2024. <laughs> so that was last summer where they told me. So that that's going into eight years. So obviously when people are trying to fight this, they give up. They don't know where to turn. They're misdirected. And individual offenses are not as impressive. You know, what kind of recourse do we have when even people who are multiple offenders um, you know, they're not getting justice. Consent's not defined in the law. And prosecutors understand that this makes prosecuting individual crimes nearly impossible. So we've been seeing a novel approach in high profile cases like R. Kelly, Glenn Maxwell, and Keith Ranieri of, of Nexium, where they very creatively came up with charges of sex trafficking and racketeering under the RICO statutes, you know, the laws that come about to address the mafia who run a criminal enterprise. That tactic thankfully resulted in guilty verdicts all around in those cases. But keep in mind, not one of those offenders were charged with a single sexual assault. So no victim received justice for their individual sexual defilement, not one. Wow. Many years ago, I get a call from a fellow in uh, St. Louis, Missouri. He's a reporter for the Kansas City Star. And he said to me, Miss Short, do you know that a federal prosecutor quoted your website in an indictment against a serial rapist. And I thought, oh my God, <laughs> I was shocked. I was stunned. It turns out that this guy had defrauded these 30 women. He claimed that he was a videographer with Playboy and he got them all to audition to be in his porn video. And then they found out, of course, that he wasn't a uh, videographer in order to silence them. He threatened to turn those videos over to their friends and their family. Anyway, so this federal prosecutor was just outraged. Not only was he outraged that he had done this, but he was outraged that he read my blog, that he read my website and he knew how harmful this was, but he went ahead and he did it anyway. And that's why my webpage got ended up in his. Anyway, they got him on cyber crimes because he used the internet uh, and there were over 30 women and that was a federal prosecutor. There's no, uh, and they didn't have enough to charge him on rape and, uh, by the federal statutes. So I went back to the law in Missouri and what I found was in Missouri, second degree rape is by force, duress, or deception. And this man created deception. And I called up the district attorney in Kansas City, Missouri, and said, so when are you bringing charges against him? Not a single charge. This guy ended up doing 10 years for the cybercrime, nothing for the sexual assault. Wow. Yeah. And it's clearly because consent is just not there. So single, if you will, a person that, you know, a perpetrator that just involved with one person really has no chance. You know, you have to have like something like 60 <laughs> accusers, you know, like in the Cosby case. And you know, that almost didn't go very well. And of course, now he's free. You know, speaking of my state, which is Pennsylvania, there were two trials in Pennsylvania for Bill Cosby. The first one was a hung jury. And, and we later found out that in both jury deliberations, the jury uh, approached the judge and said, hey, 
what's the legal definition for consent in Pennsylvania? And the judge said, that is a question that cannot be answered. And then he advised them to use their common sense. So there was a uh, a woman on the second jury. She was the foreperson and her name was Cheryl Carmel and, and she was a cybersecurity expert. And so she took it upon herself to educate the jury about what she understood consent to be um, in the general data protection regulation, which uh, protects your information on the internet. It's a European Union initiative. And, you know, GDPR says consent's freely given knowledgeable informed agreement. And because of that, I believe she was the secret sauce there. We got a, a, a you know, conviction. But like Joyce always says, we, we can't have a Cheryl Carmel in every jury. When we went to visit the legislators in Pennsylvania, I contacted Cheryl and, and we brought her along to talk with the legislators. We were all sitting around a conference room table. And I think that we had representatives or, or, or the actual legislators, five different legislative offices there. So I explained to them, you know, what had transpired and explained to them about the law and about defining consent. And then I turned it over to Cheryl to explain to them exactly what happened, because I thought that it would be an eye-opener for them. As I was looking around the table, their jaws dropped. They had absolutely no idea, absolutely no idea that consent wasn't defined and that this had transpired. I wanted to bring something else up about the statute of limitations because right now you're seeing efforts being made in order to push back the statute of limitations. In some cases of, of violent rape, you're seeing no statute of limitations, but in cases of uh, coercion and other things or sexual assault claims, there is uh, usually a five-year statute of limitations, but every, every state is different. But extending the statute of limitations alone doesn't solve the problem because the same provisions that existed when these people didn't come forward before exist today. So how does it help them? And to me, it, it seems like giving a, a refrigerator to a homeless person, right? You know, you know give them the food. <laughs> if you're giving them an empty refrigerator, what good does that do? You're giving them the shell without giving them the content. Yeah. I wanted to point out, I know that um, Carol mentioned civil remedies uh, in, the, in the podcast, and that is a way that people can sue. We, we're seeing a rash of uh, civil cases come up with the Adult Survivors Act for Bill Cosby. I'm sure more are going to happen in New York from some of our, um, our consent associates. I'm sure we'll see a lot more. But civil cases are retained with the understanding that the legal firm will be securing a portion of punitive damages. And so when your offender is just a regular person with no extraordinary relationships with institutions or, or whatever, you have no chance to retain counsel, none. So you know, yeah, civil court just works for people like O.J. Simpson or Bill Cosby or you know Harvey Weinstein. It doesn't work for just regular folk, if you will. That's a big issue. You know, civil courts is not a remedy. In fact, it's, it's less of a remedy than, than it is. Right. So I know we just have a few moments left, but I think this example that you give of this person on the jury who was the secret sauce, it just reminds me how people are needing to advocate for themselves or they're needing to just do things in this way with because the system is failing people. So I think people have to step in 
and be the ones who can educate, who can shine a light on what is really going on here and how to define it. And right, it shouldn't be dependent on that. The reality is that consent is a word with a definition. It's not rocket science. You can read my book, Your Consent, The Key to Conquering Sexual Assault. I'm about to release a revised edition of it. It will probably be out before uh, the end of January. We also have a petition. We have bills that are pending in New York. Uh, and uh, But we do expect that another state is going to introduce the bill probably within the next two weeks. The definition for consent, our consent model was used and passed by the House of Representatives in military law, in the National Defense Authorization Act that controls the Uniform Code of Military Justice. It was passed by the House of Representatives. It was not passed in the Senate, and we need it passed by both. So we're making these efforts to get jurisdictions to introduce our consent model in their statutes. And your followers can help us by signing our petition. Our petition deals with the bills that are pending in New York and the bill that is pending uh, that uh, was introduced in the National Defense Authorization Act. It will be reintroduced in 2023. And legislators don't like to be the first. That's another reason why why we get pushback. Uh, They want to get reelected and they're afraid that anything different or controversial, uh, they're not going to get reelected. They're going to have a problem. And so they're less inclined to, even though it's the right thing to do, it may concern them that it's going to keep them from getting reelected. So the more states that we can get to bring the focus on consent and introduce the bill the better apt we are to get it passed all around the country and all around the world. So even though people don't live in New York necessarily or aren't involved in the military or won't be in the state that we're getting uh, the next bill introduced in, signing our petition helps. Because if we can get it passed in any state or any jurisdiction, then it becomes the model for every state, every jurisdiction. So the one single thing that your folks can do that would really help us to get this done is to sign our petition. Read the book, watch my TEDx talk, sign the petition, call us. We'll work with you to reach your legislators and get it done in your jurisdiction. Yeah, we'll post it. That's wonderful. And Nina, is there something you want to say too before we finish up? Well, I just wanted to reiterate about Joyce's book. It's a very smartly condensed manual. It's like a 30 minute read and it really kind of does uh, some of the deep diving and the the things that we've discussed. Um, You should definitely read it and absolutely watch her TED talk. I would really encourage listeners here who are survivors of spiritual abuse, uh, cultic abuse, to watch that because a viewer of that will absolutely come to a realization about what consent really is. And I think, again, a lot of healing freedom can come with that. The, uh, the people we work with in cult abuse, spiritual abuse, they, they said that this TEDx talk was really instrumental in getting them um, on a better healing journey and just the realization of 
that, you know, even though they said yes or complied or went along, they did not consent. And that's very, very freeing and healing. The TED Talk and the petition will be in the show notes. And so that's wonderful. It's so good to speak with both of you, to hear about what you're doing, to hear about the tenacity that you have. (laughs) (laughs) I wish it were not necessary, but it is. And you have it, (laughs) right? Exhausting as pushing that boulder uphill constantly, but you know, you're there and you're doing it. And it seems also that the more you talk about it, the more there there will be a groundswell and support, I'm hoping, so that it's not all on your shoulders. And it's so, so, so important. So people know that they're protected. They know they don't have to go into the shadows. And I'm sure so many crimes are underreported, especially also for males that underreported about sexual abuse. Just because they think that they're just, once they get involved in the law, it's going to make their life more miserable. And that's been true in so many of the cases. So how nice for people to know, hopefully in the near future, there will be this clear definition. And so what I want to make sure that people know is that there are people like you out there and what this is doing for so many people, I'm sure it's very heartening and reassuring for people to hear this. So thank you so much for your work. Thank you. Thank you for all that you do. And thank you for having us here today. Yes, thank you very much. Of course, my pleasure. One more thing before you go. Thank you so much to Nina and to Joyce. It is so important that people are doing this work. It is an incredible thing to also hear about why it's so hard to have consent be understood and to be legally recognized and codified and how it might mean that then there are going to be more cases for people to deal with that fall under the rubric of uh, a lack of consent. That will then mean that the person who's done something to someone else without their consent then can be penalized. Why would that be so hard? And how is it that somehow we don't have the man or woman power to be able to address all of those new cases when we seem to find personnel to do other things. So I just, you know, I I have to wonder about all the pushback here and wonder if it's that there are a lot of people who just don't want to be taken to task for what they've done or what they're planning to do. And I think just knowing also that there are so many rape kits that have not been gone through because there are just not enough personnel and they're left to just go bad and to have the evidence be past the date of being able to verify it. There's really no reason for this. There's really no reason for people to be so unprotected, but also for something so simple as the definition of a word being able to be used and universally recognized to protect so many others that That should be something that is in place, and it shouldn't take organizations and people who really have uh, an unlimited amount of tenacity to further this and to still not even quite be there. I am wondering, of course, about the law when it comes to things like this and why it is so often that perpetrators are protected and cult leaders are protected. When we go over the definition of consent, 
the freely given, knowledgeable, informed agreement, we can see that so many times people are made to feel that they gave their consent when they didn't, or they're made to feel judged about it, or they judge themselves that somehow because they didn't fight someone off and because they didn't say no and maybe they felt like they couldn't or they had been raised to be told that it wasn't okay for them to say those things and wasn't okay for them to deny what someone wanted of them or their bodies, that somehow they were giving their consent. And so there is so much judgment and self-judgment that I think also gets in the way of people being able to report things and be very clear about what happened and what didn't happen and that something happened that they wanted versus something they really didn't. When we talk about ways that people deal with trauma, it used to be that when someone was put in harm's way, as we talked about on the show today, they were made to feel that they had to fight the person off or they had to flee. And unless they did those things, that somehow they weren't protecting themselves. They weren't doing the right things in response to a threat. But now we have a much more sophisticated way of looking at it, and it's also a way that's in transition in a positive way. It had been that when people were put in kind of a dangerous situation with someone who was scaring them, intimidating them, someone who had cornered them, someone who had gotten them alone, someone who was larger than them or had a weapon, that law enforcement would often say, well, what did you do? What did you try to do? Did you try to get away? Did you try to fight the person off? But what we know is that fight or flight is often not the choices that are the go-tos naturally in those situations, unless you feel very confident about yourself physically, unless you've been trained to do any kind of self-defense or martial arts. If you also have the wherewithal, if you haven't been completely caught off guard, if you feel like you could really take someone on, or if you know you're fast, if you know there's backup right around the corner, if the police are on their way or a friend is on their way, you know, given these sets of circumstances, then those things are possible. But that's a very, very small percentage of the time. And so for people to be penalized for not having done these things that are usually not the natural human response is completely unfair. What typically happens more so is that you have a freezing and a fawning. Now they've added flopping, like when you just become floppy, when you just don't have that rigidity in your body and the strength and you know you feel like you've lost, lost all sort of muscle control just because you've gone into a different state caused by fear. But people will more often freeze, wonder why they didn't act, wonder why they didn't yell out. But it is a very common thing. It's something that people do when they shut down. And sometimes that shutting down is because your system is overloaded. Your system is overwhelmed. You're dealing with something you've never dealt with before. And it's like people who are suddenly in a car accident or their first car accident. They might not think to quickly open the door and jump out. They might just think they have to succumb to what's happening to them and they shut down. And so... Sometimes it's also out of safety that sometimes in the past people have tried to fight and they got injured worse or they made the person even more angry with them or they tried to run and were caught and then the person punished them more severely. And so more 
people than not are going to freeze. And so then, if that's going to be somehow seen as consent, again, we're going back to it being not in line with what people should know about normal human reaction. And it should not be punishable, and it should not be seen ever as permission. The other thing that people often do is they will fawn. They will try to rationalize. They'll try to be reasonable with the person. They will try to cater to their whims, try to please them, try to say, oh, come on, you know, I'm not going to tell anyone. I won't tell anyone that you've already done what you've done to me. Uh, Just let me go and I will be quiet. I won't tell the police or you don't need to do this. Somehow getting into a fawning state where you're really trying to either cater to the person's ego or letting them know that you're not going to do anything to let anyone know they've done this. That is also sort of the second most popular, most common way of responding. So first, often you have the freezing, then the fawning, and then fight or flight. There is something that I wanted to make sure to mention that also is in line with what we have been doing to kind of expand our awareness of what people do when they're faced with these situations that are atypical for them. So they're not used to dealing with this and they're not quite sure how to. So sometimes people will do the fight or flight, most often freeze or flop or fawn. But something else that they're trying to teach people to do as often as possible is to be able to think about a friend. How do you find a friend nearby? How do you either raise your voice or alert someone with a hand signal? Let someone know that you're being, let's say, pulled somewhere against your will. Someone has their arm around you, around your shoulders, and they're guiding you, and they're telling you you have to go where they're telling you to go or where they're guiding you to go, and you're trying to get people's attention. People have started doing that by mm, kind of brushing up against someone and trying to make eye contact, showing that you're panicked, knocking something out of someone's hand who's coming by just to get their attention so that then they look at you and you can look at them and you can maybe mouth the word help. Some way to have a person who is near you, who you know or not, become a friend to you in that moment or that you will alert them to then call 911 and you can mouth 911. Whatever you think you can do to alert someone without alerting the person who is trying to harm you and trying to guide you into harm's way with them. And so there have been some videos recently about people trying different ways and again, different hand signals and different sign language. And it's a very, very smart thing. One of the things that happened during the time of COVID and lockdown, unfortunately, it was very sad, was that there was an increase in domestic violence, an increase in violence in general. And so there were a lot of different things being passed around the internet, phrases, initials people could write down, where if someone were in a restaurant, a fast food place, wherever it was, movie theater, or just walking by, they could alert people. The problem is, of course, then the rest of society needs to know how to decipher these things. And sometimes they can and sometimes they can't. But it's still very important that these are being disseminated publicly. So that if you also feel like you're ever in a situation with someone who makes you feel scared, of course, I would hope that you could remove yourself from that situation. But if you don't feel that you're able to yet, learn ways to get people's attention, 
in a safe way for you. Learn ways to also see if you can find videos as well about how to defend yourself physically or how to kind of be squirrely. How if someone has their arm around your neck, how you can just quickly drop down below their arm and run. There is something about not having to have the amount of strength that the other person has to fight them off. Being able to evade them and steal away from them is often the way to go. So please check out whatever videos you can. Talk to people who have been in these situations to see what worked for them. And with whatever support you can, please try to remove yourself, especially if you're in a relationship with someone like this, whoever makes you feel that you have to protect yourself or that you're on your own. You should never have to feel that way with someone who is supposed to care about you. Thank you so much for Nina and for Joyce and for all the others who are doing this important work. Take care. Talk to you next week. Thank you very much for listening. Please support Indoctrination on Patreon at patreon.com slash indoctrination. Be sure to give us a follow on our social media. Find us on Facebook and Instagram using at Indoctrination Podcast. And for Twitter, find us at at underscore Indoctrination. We love hearing from you too. So send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. And for more updates on the show, visit our website at www.podpage.com forward slash indoctrination.